is moving smoother than I expected. So I actually have one hour for sermon. How's that? No, I'm, I don't think so. Thank you. Let me just say a word of prayer and I bring some thoughts uh, from Luke chapter 18. Lord, what a joy to be alive. What a joy to uh, know that life is a gift from you. What a joy that we are blessed so much. Uh, we can walk, we can see, we can smell. Uh, we don't have to walk to church. <coughs> Thank you for the rain. Thank you for warm clothes. Uh, thank you for this church. We have a chairs to sit on. We have a microphone. I don't have to shout. Uh, we have uh, freedom of expression of our faith. Uh, we thank you for all this blessing that we enjoy. May you help us never to allow our blessing to become the source of our problem. May we know how to manage it. May we not allow comfort and convenience of this amazing country to suck out the faith in us, to trust, to believe in you. So be with us as we look to your word. Thank you, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that when I was young, what attracted me about Christianity and when I was young believer is the teaching of Jesus. Jesus says something that are very, very astonishing. Uh, sometimes counterculture, counterintuitive, and sometimes it's even downright shocking. Uh, and I like these uh, paradoxes that Jesus used in the Bible. For example, did you realize that the victory that we proclaim so much about Jesus, is, it is won through the defeat on the cross? So victory comes through defeat. Uh, Jesus also said healing comes through brokenness. Where does healing come from? Brokenness. When you are last, you're actually first. Giving is receiving. Dying is living. Losing self is finding self. Least is greatest. Poor is rich. Weakness is strength. Serving is actually ruling. You know, all this counterintuitive kind of uh, uh, teaching of Jesus is, is very appealing to me, you know, uh, because it's not what I think in a sense. How, how does that? It creates some sort of curiosity in my mind. And in our text that today that I want to bring to you, it is yet another of this paradox when Jesus says this towards the end of his parable in verse 14. Always listen to the punchline in the parable. He said, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Again, all these kind of paradoxes. And Jesus used this parable to bring across this point that for those who exalt himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. What is a parable? Parable is not just a story. But parable is also a story with a moral, with a moral meaning in there. But parable is not just only the story with a moral, it is also a story with a meaning behind what Jesus is trying to tell us, mostly about what the kingdom of God is all about, the values and all that. But a parable is not just only a story with a moral or a meaning, it is also a story, it is also an 
a story. It is also a story with a mirror. Parable, the, the scripture is almost like a mirror to see your own heart. While a physical mirror see your own external physical kind of face. Every morning we do that. Some longer than others, uh, but. Scripture, the Bible, the parable that Jesus tells is a mirror to reflect our heart. Mirrors are not necessarily the best of friends. You either see God more clearer or see themselves and see what they were like. Some can't live with mirror and some can't li live without. And so parable is not just a story with a moral or with a meaning or with a, mi a mirror. But it is also a story with a mystery, a mystery. Jesus often used parables, sometimes not just to reveal, but it's also to conceal. To conceal from the attack, people who somehow use it. Did you realize that when people doesn't like truth, you give truth to them, uh, you only give them more ammunition to use it to shoot you. And it comes down to the heart. So the story is also a mystery. Parable is also use it as a mystery, not just only to reveal, but it's also to conceal because of Jesus' timing in revealing who himself, who he is at the right time. And so in this parable, we are, we, we, I, I want to explore this thing about how can someone be accepted by God? If you believe in God, you then have to ask yourself, what must I do to be accepted by Him? That is the fundamental question that we need to ask if anyone who believes in God. What does Christianity, the Scripture, tells us? How can someone be accepted by God? And it might shock you. It might not shock us in some sense because we are kind of used to this parable. It, it doesn't shock us anymore in the sense. I, I kind of feel that nothing shocks us anymore. Anymore like uh, what Russell say, when you grow older, like, you don't have new jokes in the sense because you heard it all. Uh, it, I always feel that at this time that we live in, nothing shocks us anymore. What is it in this world that happened that still can shock you? Uh, but I hope it can create some shock factor in you as we read through this text and as I unpack for you. There are two kinds of people mentioned in this parable. Two kinds of people, two kinds of prayer, and two kinds of destinies. Two kinds of people, Pharisee and the tax collectors. Two kinds of prayer, two posture of prayer. One is a haughty prayer and one is a humble prayer. And there are two kinds of destinies. One is being rejected by God. One is being received by God. So two kinds of people, two kinds of prayer, and two kinds of outcome or destiny or consequence of uh, that belief. Let me just read the text to you first, and then let me quickly unpack to you uh, this important parable in answering the simple question, who can be accepted by God? To some, Jesus tells us exactly why he actually tells this parable. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone, everybody else, Jesus told this parable. So his purpose of telling this parable is because there are some people who are confident that they can be accepted by God simply because of what they can do. So for some of these people who are confident of their own righteousness, Jesus 
told this parable. And he says this, the two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed to God. No, he prayed about himself. How's that? It's almost like attending an interview where you tell about yourself and you sell yourself to the interviewer. So the Pharisee almost stood up and he prayed about himself. He said, you know, God, I, I thank you. Did he thank God? He said, I thank you that I am. He thanked God for him. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. You know, I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get, not just my income, but all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. And then Jesus' conclusion is, I tell you, this man, which is a tax collector, this man rather than the other went home justified before God. Justified is a word basically you are declared righteous. It's instant. Justification is instant. Whereas sanctification is a process. Instantly, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. We lost the shock factor because we know this story well. We know who are the Pharisees, we know who are the tax collectors. Sometimes it doesn't no longer have the shock factors. But you must understand, Jesus said there are two kinds of men, a Pharisee and a tax collector. We know that Pharisees, they are spiritual leaders among the people. He was known and respected as a true man of God. He knew the scriptures. He would have prayed at least three times every day. He fasted twice every week, even though the Old Testament prescribed that they, they should only fast once a year. But he fasts twice a week, which make it 104 times a year. And usually they fast on Monday and Thursday. And go to uh, why? Because Monday and Thursday is the market day. And somehow it's a platform for them to show off their spirituality. He tithes on everything he possessed, we are told. He tithes on everything he possessed, even the herbs that grew, that grew in his garden, not just only uh, uh, money that he received. So what we have here is a very religious man, considered to be holy by everyone who saw him. He loved the adoration that came his way from the common people around him, as Matthew 23 tells us. And, and the second man here is the tax collectors. Again, tax collector, we, we don't realize the tax collector in the, first couch, in the Asian culture at that time, uh, it was a spiritual outcast. While he was welcome to the temple to pray in the court of the Jews, he would not have been allowed to attend the meetings at the synagogue because 
He's a tax collector. The other Jews hated him and looked down on him. He, he's a, he, he worked for the Roman Empire. We Roman under the Jewish nation was under the control of the Roman Empire and the nation that had dominated and ruled Israel at that time. And Rome collected taxes and, and he just collected tax on, for, on behalf of the Roman Empire. So as a tax collector, this man would have been known for his greed and his dishonesty because the, the government only stipulated that you can tax this amount, but on top of that, privately, they will have extra things that they tax people. And so he would have been viewed as a traitor to Israel and not even worthy of any compassion or concern from the Jews around them. And in the Talmud, not the scripture, the Talmud is a... Is a Jewish tradition. It says it is righteous to lie and deceive a tax collector. It is righteous to lie and deceive a tax collector. Mind you, it's not the Bible that says that, but it's Talmud. So no collect tax collector was ever permitted to testify in a court of law because everyone knew they were liars and they took bribes. And so it's a contrast. You can't put two men that is complete opposite ends. One is righteous, one is absolute sinner. And so these two men went to pray. And so we now move to the two kinds of prayer. The first kind of prayer that the Pharisee made was a haughty prayer. The word haughty simply means disdainfully proud, snobbish, scornfully arrogant. So the Pharisee made this kind of prayer. He brags about his own righteousness. By comparing himself to other men. He said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers. I'm not like these people. So he brags about his righteousness by comparing himself to other people. He even sees the tax collector praying nearby. And then he just have a dig at this man. He said, oh, even like this tax collector. So when you really look at the prayer, the Pharisee did not really go to pray. He went to inform God how good he was. He brags about his religious works. He brags about his giving. He tells the Lord how great he is and how well he is doing. As he compares himself to others, he feels that he has arrived in the eyes of the Lord. I'm just wondering as I look through this prayer, I'm just wondering who of us here in this place sitting here, who of us here cannot find someone who is worse off than us? Who of us cannot do that? We all can find someone worse off than us. And so the Pharisee was completely satisfied with himself. He saw no lack at all. He sought no mercy. He confessed no sin. He said, well, I'm not like all these people. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of what I get. Nothing. Imagine if you go and see a doctor and you tell the doctor that. You queue up for one hour and then you go and see a doctor. You know what? I'm okay. I'm perfect. Maybe the doctor say, well, let me examine you first. It might be a different story. How to pray. But look at the tax collector's prayer. It was a humble prayer. The tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even dare to look up to heaven. The tax collector, he was humble, understanding of his condition, and he only uttered one word, 
Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Have mercy on me, a sinner. The tax collector does not offer any swelling words of self-glorification. They say that pride is concerned with who is right, whereas humility is concerned with what is right. The tax collector does not offer any swelling words of self-glorification. He knows that he was nothing at all to offer to the Lord. He knows that he is a wicked sinner. And when he prays, there is no pride, there is no pretense, there is no hint of self-righteousness, and there are no attempts to justify himself or his lifestyle in the eyes of the Lord. He just tells the truth. He humbles himself before God, and he asks God for mercy. God beating his breast, which is a sign of utmost remorse. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I think people from Islamic culture will know that, Shiite, Muslim, or they know that you beat the breast is a utmost remorseful kind of gesture. Uh, have mercy on me, a sinner. He won't even lift his eyes towards heaven. He beats himself on the breast knowing that his real problems are the problems of the heart, not just only the external action. But the Pharisee, on the other hand, is blissfully unaware that anything is wrong in his heart. Isn't that incredible? And this is precisely why the title of this sermon is called The Paradox of Pardon. And this principle rings throughout the Gospel. Bravado and appearance means nothing at all. Social status means nothing. Self-reliance means nothing. What counts is a heart that appreciates what God can give. And that is why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5 verse 3 in Matthew, immediately he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who know when they come before God that spiritually they, they are bankrupt. There's nothing in them that can offer to God. I'm zero. My cupboards are bare. My pockets are empty. My options are gone. I've long since stopped demanding justice. I'm pleading for mercy. I don't brag, but I beg. I ask God to do for me what we can't do without Him. And so, the tax collectors understands that and come before God. Someone say, don't judge someone just because they sin differently than you. Don't judge someone just because they sinned differently from you. That's all. We just sin differently. But it gives us kind of superior moral virtues that because we don't do that, we can condemn someone. But those things that you do, that person might not be doing as well. And they can use it on you as well. So don't judge someone just because they sin differently than you. And Max Lucado, the American author that when I was new as a Christian, I was absorbed into his book. And the very first book I, I read was No Wonder They Call Him the Savior. And it's a very powerful book. Uh, he says this, he says, God does not save us because of what we have done. Only a puny God could be bought with money. Only an egotistical God would be impressed with our pain. Only a temperamental God 
could be satisfied by our sacrifices. Only a heartless God would sell salvation to the highest bidders. And only a great God does for His children what they can't do for themselves. And that is the Christian God. The God of the Bible. And so the first step to salvation is always to plead for help. The self-made man is a horrible example of unskilled labor. And, and the tax collectors know his own heart. And I wish that we Christians uh, have this thing about what I call self-aware. You know, in Eastern religion, they are always pushing down this path of enlightenment, of awareness, self-awareness. Aware of our own, our own heart. Thomas Hardy said, If a way to be better there be, it lies in taking a full look at the worst. Then and only something good can come out of it because you accept reality. Until someone accepts reality, nothing good can come out of it. But we live in this age that we deceive ourselves sometimes because we are not willing to look into the deepest recesses of our heart. And therefore, we drown ourselves with music nowadays, you know. Whether we step into the car, go to do this, everywhere there must be noise behind to distract us from hearing the cry of our own heart. Drown it out! And that is why when you're lying in bed, you can't sleep, you know, all this real concern of your heart begins to surface and then you quickly drown out with some music <laughs> but we don't listen to it we don't, you don't and sometimes conversation nowadays is so difficult isn't it we, we, we talk so much but we don't actually share the deep things you know last time when I lead you group they always like to write D and M you know conversation you know? You know, what is D and M you know when I was working I only know D and M means duty manager or something you know but it means deep and meaningful conversation. But we don't have deep and meaningful conversation now. We talk about politics, we talk about many things, but we don't share the things of our heart because it's so hard to share without feeling that you're being judged. But we've got to be aware of our own heart. Dostoevsky, in his book called Honesty, he said, when we lie to ourselves and believe our own lies, we become unable to recognize truth, either in ourselves or in anyone else. And we end up losing respect for ourselves and for others. And when we have no respect for anyone, we can no longer love. And in order to divert ourselves, having no love in us, we yield to our impulses, indulge in the lowest forms of pleasure, and behave in the end like an animal, in satisfying our vices, and it all comes from lying, lying to others and ourselves. It's sad, isn't it? Lying to yourselves. And so to live by grace, like the text collector, it means to acknowledge my whole life story, the light side and the dark side. In admitting my shadow side, I learn who I am and what God's grace means. As Thomas Merton the mystic writers say, a saint is not someone who is good, but a saint is someone who experiences the goodness of God. That is a saint. 
Because so long as you don't acknowledge, you cannot experience the goodness of God. Until we acknowledge, we can experience God's mercy and grace. Like the beautiful hymns that say, the Rock of Ages, that spells up so beautifully, that say, nothing in my hand I bring. You know this hymn? Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress. Helpless I look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior. Oh, I die. Like a drowning man who cannot save until he is utterly exhausted and ceases to make the slightest effort to save himself. Brendan Manning, in a book called The Importance of Being Foolish, he says, Self-deception is the enemy of wholeness because it prevents us from seeing ourselves as we really are. It covers up our lack of growth in the spirit of the truthful, one that keeps us from coming to terms with our real personalities. No choice was possible until the enemy was identified through a painful process. Self-deceptions had to be unmasked in all its absurdity, if wholeness is to be experienced. So wholeness, you cannot experience wholeness until and only we recognize that we are sinners before God. As difficult as it is to acknowledge, as difficult it is that this word is fast becoming bygone era of acknowledging your sinner. It's no longer being mentioned. A, big, a large church in, in here, near near our church, not too far away, uh, they don't say sin anymore. They, see, they use the word mistakes. Let us confess our mistakes to God. A mystic author says, He who knows his sin is much greater than he who makes someone rise from the dead. He who really cries one hour about himself is greater than he who teaches the whole world. He who knows his own weakness is greater than he who sees the angels. Until the tax collectors see himself as who he is, acknowledge that what he has done is wrong, then and only he can experience the mercy, the goodness, the grace, and the love of God. Without going through that, we cannot experience. In the 1970s, there was a tele-evangelist in America by the name of Jim Baker. You remember that? For those who are older, Jim Baker. He was one of the first, probably, early days of this huge kind of mega church movement into television and all that. He began the PTL ministry, Praise the Lord ministry. And he built the ministry from the ground up and would eventually have a 500-room luxury hotel, its own cable TV show, an amusement park, and an amphitheater, and doing so much thing, you know. But of course, he, due to money problem, fraud, he was thrown into prison uh, and he was in languishing in jail for many years. And in the jail, he was forced to confront who he is. And in one of his confessions, he wrote this. He said, God, are you there? The pain of not knowing where you are and if you even exist is more than I can bear. I feel like heavy weights are pulling my heart from my chest. 
My heart is aching. The loneliness is so loud, I cannot sleep. My friends have walked away and now you have turned your back on me. All my sins I have ever committed are coming before me. Must I now pay for all my sins? Did you not pay for that at Calvary? Am I going to die in this cell? Do you hate me, God? Please forgive me for my sins. Did you not pay for that at Calvary? Am I going to die? Please, Lord, forgive me. It is hell without you. Please don't leave me alone. If you are there, please do something to let me know you still love me. I'm scared in this place. I only live. Listen to this. He said, I only live because I do not die. God, let me die. And then in his book, he said this. He said, one day as he was working in the prison, there was a page for him because there was a visitor visiting him. And when he went to his visiting lounge, he saw this tall man. And he is none other than the greatest evangelist in the 20th century, Billy Graham. And this is what Jim Baker said. He said, I cry like a baby. Do you know what it feels like to be the most despised minister in the land and being embraced by the most admired minister in the land and who said to me, I love you, Jim. Do you know how that feels, is it? And that is precisely Christian gospel is all about. Is this self-awareness like the tax collector of our own condition of our heart and come before God and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Chinese has a proverb that says, let me just push forward. He said, be, be like the bamboo. The higher you grow, the deeper you bow. The higher you grow, the deeper you bow. And for us believers, as we age, as we grow, as we accumulate knowledge and experiences in life, we should go lower. Not become proud. Not become haughty. Not boasting about our own righteousness. In the eyes of God, we are all the same. We are all saved by grace on the same platform. And as a result of two men, Pharisees and tax collectors, two prayers, one is a haughty prayer, one is a humble prayer, and then there are two outcomes. And the two outcomes is simply one is rejected and one is received. He said, I tell you, the, this man, this tax collector, because he is aware of his own condition, that until he can aware of his own condition, Jesus said, yours is the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For those who exalt himself will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Paradox! Paradoxes in the scripture. Counterculture, counterintuitive, downright shocking. But such is the gospel. Who can be accepted by God? Those who humbly come before him, acknowledge that they are sinned and know that they can't save themselves except the cross of Jesus to save us. Let me close with this. Many of us know this singer, Leonard Cohen. 
Canadian Jew, passed away two years ago. In his 47 years career, interestingly, he only cut 13 albums compared to many others. And of course, his famous song is the song Hallelujah, that most of us know. Hallelujah, hallelujah, you know. But there's another unknown song called Please Don't Pass Me By. And I'm going to read some of the words to you as a conclusion to this sermon. Please don't pass me by. This is what he says in his song. He said, I was walking in New York City and I brushed up against the man in front of me. I felt a cardboard play card on his back. And when we passed at a street light, I could read it. It said, please don't pass me by. I'm blind, but you can see. I've been blinded totally. Please don't pass me by. I was walking along 7th Avenue when I came to 14th Street. I saw on the corner curious mutilations of the human form. It was a school for handicapped people. And there were cripples and people in wheelchairs and crutches and it was snowing and I got this sense that the whole city was singing this oh please don't pass me by oh please don't pass me by for I am blind but you can see yes I've been blinded totally oh please don't pass me by and as he sing this song in Albert Hall he said this as you know as I was walking I thought it was them who were singing it. I thought it was they who were singing it. I thought it was the other who were singing it. I thought it was someone else. But as I moved along, I knew it was me. And that I was singing it to myself. Please don't pass me by. Oh, please don't pass me by. For I'm blind, but you can see. Well, I've been blinded totally. Oh, please don't pass me by. Oh, please don't pass me by and here now he appealed to his audience he said well now I know you're sitting there deep in your velvet seats and you are thinking ah he's up there saying something that he thinks about but I'll never have to sing that song and then Cohen went on to say but I promise you friends that you are going to be singing this song it may not be tonight it may not be tomorrow but one day you'll be on your knees and I want you to know the words when the time comes because you are going to have to sing it to yourself or to another or to your brother. You are going to have to learn to sing this song. It goes, please don't pass me by. Uh, you, don't have, you don't have to sing this. Uh, not for you. Please don't pass me by for I am blind but you can see. Yes, I've been blinded totally. Oh, please don't pass me by. I know that you still think that it's me. I know that you, you think that it's somebody else. I know that these words aren't yours. But I tell you, friends, that one day, well, you know, I have my songs and I have my poems, I have my book, I have my army, and sometimes I have your applause, I make some money, but you know what, my friends, I'm still out there on the corner. I'm with the freaks, I'm with the hunted, I'm with the maimed, yes, I'm, I'm with the torn, I'm with the down, I'm with the poor. Come on now, please don't pass me by. Well, I've got to go now, friends, but please don't pass me by. Longer, more and more. Don't pass me by. Jesus won't pass you by. You come to Him, bow your heads, and plead for His mercy. And when you experience His mercy, His grace, His goodness, then 
new beginning will happen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this parable. Thank you for these tax collectors who is simply aware of his spiritual conditions and bow before the foot of the cross and say, Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord, some of us this morning, we have to do that. Because one day, you said in Philippians 2, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess. We will have to sing the song. But thank you that you don't pass us by. You reach out to us. You long for us to come to you. May we today bow our heads, bend our knees and say, Lord Jesus, have mercy on us as sinner. Save us, change us, transform us from within. Help us to know that we are nobody willing to tell everybody that there is somebody who can save anybody. That we are nobody willing to tell everybody that there is somebody and that is Jesus who can save anybody. Thank you, Lord. As we sing this closing hymn, we thank you. Thank you, salvation belongs to you. The promise of eternal life is here, right in front of us when we embrace Christ. May this song remind us of that. Thank you, Lord. We bless you in Jesus' name.